Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for welcoming Amartya Sen with that round of applause. And now it's my chance, I'm Craig Calhoun, the director, to welcome you. Thank you for coming to this event. It's a great honor for all of us at the LSE to welcome Professor Amartya Sen home to the LSE. <laughs> Amartya uh, gave his inaugural lecture here some uh, 40 years ago and has uh, gone on to a very distinguished range of other professorships, but I hope that he also always considers the LSE at least as one of his homes. As I'm sure you're all aware, Professor Sen is Lamont University professor, professor of philosophy and of economics at Harvard University. He is an honorary fellow of the LSE. He is a laureate, Nobel laureate in economics, 1998, and was Master of Trinity College, Cambridge, 1998 to 2004. He is the author of many books, Too Many to List, Development as Freedom, Rationality and Freedom, The Argumentative Indian, Identity and Violence, The Idea of Justice, and An Uncertain Glory with Jean Jaurès. And I hope that you will learn a bit more about An Uncertain Glory, and the theme of India and its contradictions tonight. And I'm pleased to indicate that the copies of the book will be for sale outside the room and that Professor Sen will be signing copies. For Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hash LSE India. And there will be a chance for you to put your questions to Professor Sen after the lecture. Professor Sen, May I now welcome you to the LSE yet again and to this speech. Thank you for joining us. <clears throat> now, it really is wonderful to be back at LSE, and thank you very much, Director, for your kind welcome. I not only gave my inaugural address here, I used to give lectures on principles of economics here, <laughs> <laughs> drawing demand and supply curves and such things a uh, long time ago. Um, now, I think the idea is to divide the time uh, um, more towards Q&A and less towards my speech. Uh, so I think I said I'll try to speak about half an hour and then have the rest of the time for Q&A. Now, um, I think the title of the book is Indian, uh, well, an, uh, an uncertain glory, and then India and its contradictions. Um, I think it was changed to here, economic and social conditions of India. I think that was the way the title is in the now. Isn't that right? Something, something of that kind. Yeah. But the... Um, I, uh, I think maybe I should say that one word about the title before the subtitle. Uh, it's actually from uh, three gentlemen, uh, two gentlemen in Verona uh, from, uh, from uh, Shakespeare. I think it's Portrias is describing an uncertain day uh, as well, glorious sunshine, but you're not absolutely certain. Um, now, I think... Um, there's some reason to think that India is in that position, not so much that there's a glorious sunshine now 
and rain might come later, but there is sunshine and rain, <laughs> rain right now going on. Uh, and India in its contradictions, uh, of course, tries to capture the fact that there are a number of really contradictory features in, in our achievements and in our failures. Uh, um, the, uh, uh, it's a quite a critical book, uh, and that's why it's quite important for me to say our. Uh, it's, uh, uh, I'm reminded it's our, since I'm exclusively an Indian citizen, every time I'm trying to enter England, but uh, the, the Irish center is not working. <laughs> when it works, then you can go through in two seconds, because it's recognized as my, as a resident, it's recognized as my, my pupil. But when it isn't there, I was actually asked last night saying, why am I coming in here? <laughs> then I have to go through a story. Um, the, so it's a critical book, and, that's, and uh, in a way that it's easier to do if you are one of them rather than if you are an outsider, like Miss Catherine Mayo uh, writing about Mother India, <laughs> something like that. So I think, I think actually I can see how the generations have moved. Miss Catherine Mayo means nothing to people now. <laughs> Mother India was a great uh, uh, argument presented actually from about 100 meters uh, far, away, far away from where I now live, from Battle Street, in, in, uh, written by an American woman who was very keen that the English shouldn't give up their empire because the Indians are completely unable to manage things. Uh, um, now, how did the, I might, since I've got there, how did the Raj manage it. It's quite interesting that the, at the beginning of the period, um, when in 1776 uh, Adam Smith was publishing The Wealth of Nations, um, he put down India and he separated out Bengal because that's the part that which the English were familiar with, uh, among the richest parts of the world. And he engaged himself on the question, why is it so rich? And his answer, and which you wouldn't be surprised if you know Smith's theory about trade and market, is that, you know, there have been navigable rivers there, Ganges in particular, and that encouraged trade in a way it had done in Nile and, and in similar Chinese rivers, but not in other places. So he was actually, even in explaining why India is so rich, and he was talking really about North India and Bengal in particular, uh, because how they were based on, on trade. And of course, if you remember that, is the, he, he was talking at the time when there's English settlement from the, on the mouth of the Ganges, and there, then, they, then they, the Dutch, the French, the Portuguese, the Russians, and the Danes, uh, all of them clustered um, around that area. And indeed, actually, if you wanted to look for it, you, if you go and looked up Ptolemy's geography, uh, uh, they, uh, you'll find that he described the five months of Ganges and the trade carried out there in, in some detail. So actually that was the position. Now by the time the British Empire ended, I'm afraid India's position wasn't like that. And I think it's quite remarkable now there's all kinds of debate about what the British did and did not do. One of the difficulties with that debate is that it it's assumed that if India had not been colonized by Britain, then India would be today exactly as it was in 1757. 
And then, of course, it's easy. There are lots of things came, like newspapers and media and radio and television, and just imagine India without that. But of course, as a country like Japan shows that it doesn't, if you compare Japan when it was being clamped down and, and assumed that when in 1900 will come, 1868 is the Meiji Restoration, it would look exactly as, uh, as it was at that time, you would make a big mistake. Basically, the economic growth in that period was extremely low, near zero. In fact, we have data, clear data, from the first half of the 20th century. Um, uh, in, in our book, Jean-Dres, by the way, I ought to mention it's a joint book, very much a joint book, and uh, Jean-Dres, uh, 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 I have a very good partnership with Jean-Dres, whereby he does 90% of the work, and I get, <laughs> and I get 90% of the credit. <laughs> and so uh, the rate of growth of the, um, uh, of the Indian economy in the first half of the 20th century, that is up to independence, is 0.1% per year. And when the rest of the world was marching ahead, and you can see what was even, is <laughs> not even at the, end, at the time it ends. Now, since then, a lot of things happened. Now, people grumble, quite rightly, that the growth rate that India had was very low and sometimes called the slow. I think the Hindu rate of growth used to be stated. But the Hindu rate of growth was 3.5% a year. That's a kind of dynamic economy compared with 0.1%. And the fact is that the uh, growth rate will pick up from then onward. Uh, and then it went to 5 and 6%. By the 1980s, it was already um, uh, uh, in that period, 5, 5%. And then, of course, there came the, uh, the reforms. And the reforms basically didn't immediately raise the growth rate but raised a solid, produced a solid basis on, on, the basis, on the basis of which India could go ahead and the abolition of the of license Raj, which we discuss in some detail in the book, was one of the major changes which allowed it to go five, six, seven, eight percent and for many years India became the second fastest large, uh, second fastest growing large economy in the world. Overall, if you look at that perspective, things have moved on. There isn't much to complain at that abstract level. The per capita with uh, income 2011 is a little over five times after correcting for inflation and per capita figure is about five times what it was when the country achieved independence. The uh, life expectancy was then 32 years and now it's 66, it's about twice. The fertility rate was close to 6%, and that's now 2.4 to 2.6, depending on which estimate you go by, which is inching towards uh, replacement level. Some uh, five, six states already are below replacement. Now, um, and this has come with a determination to build up a democratic system right from the beginning. No hesitation on that. One moment it was decided after, well, it wasn't the moment, the Constituent uh, Assembly met on how to have a democratic constitution, and after a lot of discussion, outlined a, a fairly well-designed uh, democratic system which came into effect at that time. Um, the, um, 
it was um, uh, so the second half of 20th century was that and there was one bit of strain at the time of emergency but the voting system already written in the constitution dealt with that and I think one of the most important thing that happened is whether the majority is going to stand up for minority rights and it did because the people who were really under threat in the emergency period were, were in fact a minority, not a religion-based minority as it might be in the, at the time of, for example, the Gujarat riots. But it is a minority nevertheless whose life were affected. But a majority was solid in its support and that's one way of making human rights and, and basic minority rights and civil rights solid. So I think India comes out pretty well in that. Um, and the, as far as things like rule of law is concerned, even human rights, India, like South Africa, has a human rights commission with a legal standing. It's, that doesn't mean that that's the only way of doing it. I'm always absolutely full of admiration for how much the Pakistan Human Rights Commission has achieved. By sheer good leadership, Azma Jahangir and Rahman, uh, because the Pakistan Human Rights Commission is just an NGO. And nevertheless, by naming and shaming and activism, including taking a film of a, of a young woman being caned in, in Fort Valley and putting it in the media, made the Pakistani opinion swing against uh, uh, non-action in favor of uh, the military having to intervene in the Fort Valley at that time. So I'm not saying that's the only way of doing it, so if you don't have a uh, legally constituted human rights commission, then do what you can and do it as imaginatively as, as uh, Pakistan has. On the other hand, the fact that India has um, a human rights commission which has a completely legal status uh, is enormously important. And that was actually consciously uh, um, uh, uh, pursued on similar line by South Africa. Now, so um, where does this uncertainty stuff come in if all this is going so swimmingly well? Well, the fact is that it isn't going swimmingly well. Not at all. And why not? Well, first of all, India has been going very fast, certainly. That, that five times, a lot of it happened over the last two or three decades. But the, um, if you look at the our relative standing compared with many other countries whom we, whom, which has, we have overtaken in terms of per capita income. Our position in terms of standard indicators of, uh, uh, of, of quality of life and living standard has actually fallen behind. <laughs> Even compared with South Asia, we were the, in 1990 we were the second highest in terms of the average of social indicators, the following Sri Lanka. Now we are the second lowest, just above Pakistan, troubled by its own military problems, and way behind Bangladesh. I mean, just to give some numbers, and if you compare it with China, and India-China comparison is very important, and I have to spend, I will have to spend a little time on India-China comparison, and then India and Bangladesh comparison too, but just to give you some numbers, India's life expectancy, as I mentioned, has now risen to 66. China's is 73. Bangladesh was three years behind India's 62 in 1990. Now it's four years ahead. 
namely it 69 the uh, um, the uh, uh, the, uh, there are many indicators of the book the book is full of tables I'm afraid um, <laughs> the uh, um, the um, uh, and um, uh, just to click one indicator among many, you should like, go by immunization rate, which is easy to do. <laughs> India's immunization rate, complete immunization, is only 72% of the population, compared with 99% in China and 96% in Bangladesh. Something had gone wrong there, <laughs> certainly. Uh, Bangladesh's fertility rate, which is much above India's, have come well past, and now it's 2.1, 2.2, 2.1 is replacement. So there are things happening where we're falling behind, and compared with China, particularly falling behind. I come to the Bangladesh story within my allotted time, if I could fit it in a bit later. But what's gone wrong? Now, um, I think there are three ways of judging how things are going. One is the criteria of well-being, which is ultimately important if you are looking at, um, uh, if you are concerned, as, as many of us are, uh, with the welfare of the people. But then there's a question of freedom and any concept of justice that takes freedom seriously. So there's that. And then there's a third criteria, which is not a human-related criteria, so ultimately it is a means rather than an end, but it's so important a means that it could have a special status, namely economic growth, namely how is the country getting richer. So I will use these as three criteria, bearing in mind that growth is ultimately desired not for its own sake, but for what it does to human beings. But the first two, of course, are really important. And some uh, economists looking at welfare would go by criteria of well-being, but then others who would look for a criteria of justice that is more related to freedom, which takes well-being into account, but not just that. So there's slight complexity on that. Okay, so let's just leave that point there um, and go straight on to uh, the comparison I, I was uh, suggesting I might do, namely China and India, but a bit more than that. Uh, if, for those who are interested, I did do a paper, an op-ed, in the New York Times. I think it came out on the 20th December. I was giving a World Bank lecture called Why China is Ahead of India, and New York Times wanted to publish it. They changed the title, of course, and made it Why Tra India Trails China. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, as the as a self-confident newspapers like New York Times would say we are never second so it has to come out just before your lecture so you have to stay up tonight and write it up and I wrote it up <laughs> and it came so 7 o'clock they were in the newsstand at, and at uh, 10 o'clock I was lecturing on it in the world bank um, so let me take my clue from that because, uh, because that's one way of starting but I think the really interesting thing is, 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 is the pioneering departure in Asian economic development, which happens neither in India nor in China, but in fact happens in Japan. And the fact that Japan was an independent country, the only one to exercise its own choice at that time, 
is very important in the colonial, post-colonial debate. In my late age, I'm getting more and more interested in history. So someday I'll have to visit that territory. But um, um, the Chinese uh, were under influence, but not quite ruled by, by foreigners like uh, we were. But there were things like opium and so on to deal with. And, and most countries were under some kind of influence of the, of the, of the, of the Western imperial powers. Now, the Japan, Japan, of course, had gone into a shell, and it came out, and 1868 was a major restoration, and they asked the question, what shall we do? As Mr. Takayoshi, one of the reformers, said, well, the central thing to recognize is that there's no difference between Japanese people and the Americans and Europeans. They are richer, they are more productive, mainly because they are educated and we are not. And with that statement began the enormous effort by Japan to advance education. And uh, the Code of Education came in, asserting that there should be, within three decades, no illiterate family and no family with a single illiterate person. And by about three decades, Japan was indeed fully literate. By 1913, Japan, still a poor country, was publishing more books than any other country in the world, and three times as many books, sorry, twice as many books as the United States. And along with that came public health care, basically concerned with the capability of human beings. It is an approach whereby you not only value human capability as being in itself a great value, part of the understanding of, of freedom, but also it's something which makes you richer and it also contributes to economic growth, and that in its turn contributes to human well-being uh, if it's uh, evenly distributed, and they're very keen on educating everyone, not leaving anyone out. Now, that approach, of course, dramatically worked. And for a while, Japan became the biggest um, uh, exemplar to the world of fast economic growth. Now, um, some people actually noticed that, and I think I have to give credit to uh, uh, Tagore, the poet there, because in his writing in Japan, he focuses on education and goes on to say, a statement which we quote in the book, that um, if all the thing, all the problems from which India suffers, if you look at them, the root of all of which ultimately goes down to lack of education and, and, and literacy. That is not a standard view that the Indians actually took, uh, even at that time, in the time of independence, I have to say. In fact, some of them were very retrograde. The first five-year plan is often quoted that it brought in socialism, that's always said, <laughs> it's quoted. Now every socialist country, if you buy with that, you mean communist countries, if you know anything about your history, the one thing that they were doing was education for all. Soviet Union, even today Soviet Asia, if you look at the literacy numbers of the former Soviet Union in Asia compared with the neighboring countries, Vietnam, Cuba, no, Cambodia, no exception. But all that, of course, happened without trying to link it up with economic development in any way. That linkage is something which the Japanese had done, 
and was done at a theoretical level by Adam Smith. And related basically to his general point, which he articulates, not in his first book, which is in some ways I'm attached with because the penguin edition of the uh, theory of moral sentiments is, is I see as mine since I wrote a long introduction to that. Came, up, came out on the 250th anniversary of the work, Theory of Moral Sentiments. But this is the Wealth of Nations, 1776, where he says that the reason why he wants a good political economy, basically what he would have called today fast rate or economic growth, economic progress, are for two reasons. One, it increases income in the hands of people who are then able to advance their own lives. So this is really a kind of statement about capability. And two, it increases income of the government or the commonwealth. And the government and commonwealth can do those things only with which only the government and the commonwealth can do well and fairly. And that includes, of course, education. And he discussed a lot about education. So I, I don't think the, the Japanese quoted Smith, but Smith was very, very concerned about that and treated raising human skill as a central part of the exercise of economic development. That lesson that in practice came from Japan for Asia was of course immediately followed. By the end of the Second World War, Korea, which had, didn't have very high level of literacy, but like in India, they also had a big intellectual tradition, certainly some of the neo-Confucian uh, discussion of which I spent couple of months reading, which was absolutely fascinating to read in the 15th, 16th century. But they didn't like in India, they were uneven. But of course, they wanted to proceed there and proceed where Japan had done, and did so rapidly. First covered the entire population, then concentrated on the quality of education, and then found a state in which not only Korea as it is now, has one of the highest quality of education, done by PISA indicators anywhere in the world, but of course the entire population is evenly covered. And the famous equity with growth slogan, uh, that is not adequate for the government just to say we want equity. The question, what are you doing about it? So if everyone's educated and everyone has good health care, then you can proceed in that direction. And how come aren't you doing a market economy? Of course. These are completely complementary to the market economy, is exactly the way Smith looked at it. And therefore, the idea that you can do the market economy and then, when you're very high rate of growth and high income, then proceed to health and education is a complete uh, putting the cart before the horse as to what's happening. So, Korea was a great success. So was Taiwan. So was, of course, in a much smaller way, but in a much more intense way, Hong Kong, Singapore. And Thailand, and increasingly, as it becomes clearer, even Indonesia, uh, proceeded not quite as fast in, in the same direction. And of course, they all became richer quite, quite quickly. Many of them became <laughs> eligible for OECD membership and so on. And that point is often missed when, uh, for example, Sam Huntington in a book said the Koreans and the um, Koreans and the Ghanians had exactly the same per capita income at the end of the war. And today, Korea is that many times, I've forgotten, 10 times richer, or 
20 times richer. And usually people say, oh, that is just the market economy. That's one, one way of deluding yourself. And the other way of deluding yourself is the one which Sam Huntington chose, namely to say, to refer to the quality of the people. Uh, Koreans believed in hard work. Ghanians had different values. I love that word, different <laughs> values. Uh, I mean, it's almost as close to an unconcealed racism as you can get to. Uh, but of course it was the market economy, but it was also government, it was education, it was healthcare. It so happened in Korea, even the banks were all nationalized. But education, healthcare, there's no question. That's a, that's a partnership that which had talked about. Now that's the lesson that the that I think we comprehensively missed. The Chinese missed one part of it, but not the other. In fact, to be fair, quite independently, given of their left-wing communist commitment, the Maoist regime was very keen on education for all and healthcare for all. And they went very fast in that direction, rapidly. India, in the first five-year plan, which I refer to, which is thought to meant to be the socialist one, even not only did it not proceed there, there was a whole section saying why it's not important to have formal education for all. What you need is basic education. This was actually, uh, uh, this is one of the greatest figures for one of my person I admire most, namely Mahatma Gandhi himself, was involved in that statement about basic education. He thought that free education should come from work. He talked about even about Chaka. That's the point when Rabindranath Tagore had written a letter to Gandhiji saying that the, the due diligence about uh, spinning with Chaka um, requires uh, a minimum of imagination and a minimum of stamina and a maximum of boredom. And, and that's certainly not a way in which any country has become liquid. I think first five-year plan was an absolute washout on education. And that continues for a long time. It's only now being reversed. We were fairly fast, but after a long, long time. Um, so I think when what the Chinese did, they had that, but they had deep suspicion of the market economy. So they had 100% health coverage. They had much more expanded education base, but they, did not, they allowed even less trade than than Indian economy did, and that's quite an achievement. And that is the thing that changed with the economic reform, 79. And then the Chinese, of course, rapidly altered everything, and so the agriculture became privatized, not private ownership, it's still owned by the state, but you had long-term tenure, responsibility system, as it's called, and that was uh, one of the biggest things that's happened to any agriculture ever, and in the 1980s, Chinese agriculture was going faster than any other agriculture in the history of the world. By the 90s, they got onto the industries, and then they privatized it and marketized it, and they were, and they of course had an educated population on which they didn't slacken, and they of course proceeded to become a world beater in, the, in, in terms of uh, uh, that combination. Where they faltered, however, was healthcare. Because thinking that everything goes better in the private sphere, they moved one warning from a, US, a Canada type system to a US type system. So the percentage of coverage fell from 100% to 
to about 10 or 11 percent by 1980. And you see that. I remember looking at those numbers, and the mortality rate immediately seemed to go up, but I wasn't absolutely certain. I thought some of it was better reporting. But certainly, the progress of life expectancy uh, uh, slowed down. India wasn't doing anything terribly good, but India, which was 14 years behind China in terms of life expectancy, then became seven years, because the India was not doing terribly good, but the Chinese were doing even worse. <laughs> then I, you know, I, 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 I happen to be, uh, to be uh, I was at the two universities I'm quite connected with, Peking University and, and Renman, which is the People's University. In fact, I chair the development uh, advisory board of the Development Institute in the Peking University. And I could see that in our discussion, regularly this issue about healthcare was coming up and up. And even though China is not a democracy, as the voice of the professional people grew in China, and it has dramatically grown, there's no question about that, that became being heard from 2002, where you could see that a certain amount of sympathy in government circles. By 2004, China took a decision to reverse it. And the coverage jumped from 10 or 11 to 15 to 20, 30. Uh, 60, 70, 80, now it's about 96% is health coverage. Now, in India, of course, there's no health coverage for anyone who happens to be in an out-of-pocket system, but if you happen to be there, you'll be all right. Uh, uh, but, uh, and some of them are very good, and I am quite critical of the government policy that if you happen to have a very expensive thing, then the government may reimburse you, and that seems to be to neglect basic health care and preventive health care and put the money mainly when a, a hospital or, a, or, or an enterprise has, a, uh, has an interest in operating on you and then get it compensated. So I think the Indian healthcare system has become a veritable mess. The education is pretty bad mess too. It's not a question of the public schools and private schools. I mean, there are some very elite schools, of course, and they produce, the, you know, you run into them everywhere. Uh, whether they're <laughs> doing everything, doing very great things. But if you first took the view that there is therefore no educational problem, uh, there is an issue there. Uh, just to give one of the numbers, uh, uh, more than half the population, half the school children, after four years of schooling, cannot divide 20 by 5. And the percentage of uh, girls which are, who are not still covered, they may be uh, registered in school, enrolled, but don't come regularly, is quite low. As an average day, if taking into account the teacher and student absenteeism, only a little over 50% of, the, of, the, of, the, of any kind of activity is benefiting students at, on, on an average day. So it, it's really a, a quite a terrible backwardness in this area. Now, the, what does it do? Well, first of all, since education and healthcare are very basic to well-being, I'm coming to those two criteria, it makes a big difference. Secondly, freedom. Freedom has different aspect. There is the capability aspect, and there is you're not being prevented. And when India had the license for us, there was a overactivity of the government, which prevented all kinds of activities which should be quite normal, as I argued in the development of freedom, to be generically against 
market relations would be as bad as being generally colleague and conversation between people. You don't have to ask, is conversation fruitful? People have a right to chat. So if they want to have a trade with someone, they should be able to trade with someone. But the question is, I mean, there, there are still bad speeches, uh, you know, free speeches, you know, you can't, I can't shout fire in this room. But you have to treat restriction with showing why it should be restricted. So that was a big progress led by the present prime minister, but then the finance minister, Manmohan Singh. But if I had any different, I'm basically a very close friend of uh, Manmohan, and of course um, uh, I was not 100% backing uh, Manmohan, not because I didn't want reform, I wanted that 100%, but I wanted him to do more. India had a counterproductive state, but which did things which it didn't need to do and did badly. And it was negligent, negligent state, where there were a lot of things it didn't do, education, healthcare, uh, sanitary things. Uh, I see Isha Arwal, you have here also one of the things on that interesting thing that the government was failing to do. So there's quite a lot of things that's very important. Now, what is its impact on growth? Well, bear in mind that the China's ability to grow as fast is being based not only, of course, on Chinese virtue, which includes organizations and so on, one wasn't take that away. But it's also they're dealing with a model which had functioned everywhere well, where it's been tried from Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, Thailand, and so on. So it, I think that makes a big difference. So there's sometimes when the question is asked, uh, do I take growth very seriously? I do take growth very seriously. <laughs> but I want to know what causes growth. <laughs> I also want to know what do we do with the fruits of economic growth. What the Chinese did was to raise the proportion as the money is generated, as Smith predicted, with high growth rates, comes uh, state's income, not only private income. They allocate a high proportion of that to, um, to uh, public services. China spends 2.7% of the GDP in governmental health care. India spends 1.2%. There is a difference. Now, there's an organizational problem too. And India has gotten itself into an organizational problem where schools don't work and hospitals don't work. And when I got the Nobel, I was fortunate to have that money to start two trusts, one in Bangladesh, one in India. And the Bangladesh one is mainly concerned with gender equity. Which, on which I'm going to talk in a minute, but the, um, the, um, the Indian one that, uh, uh, we have also had a couple of schools, but, we, but mostly we study what's going wrong in delivery of public health care and public education, and some of the absenteeism figures come from that. But also on an average day, you may find it very difficult to find a, a, a doctor in a public health care, even if there is a public health care system close to you. So you're reliant often on this, privatized healthcare simply because the state is not providing anything very much. And of course, as Kenneth Arrow discussed in the American Economic Review in 1963, if you haven't read it and if you are an economist, you ought to read it uh, and, and discuss why you cannot do it by the market economy ever because of asymmetry of information. Neither the insurance works nor the private thing. A doctor knows a lot more about what's wrong with you than you do. So if a doctor 
tells you that you have to spend this much money and you have no competition, no public uh, center to go to, you, you will be exploited. And of course, um, uh, that happened. I, we even recorded cases where at a high cost, a peasant family had paid money to get saline injection uh, in order to um, uh, deal with malaria, which uh, in the medical sciences have not yet uh, caught up with any benefit of saline injection uh, in these cases. So I think that is a really terrible thing, and I think there's a basic organizational failure, and there is also an allocational failure. Allocational failure of the kind that Adam Smith talked about, the, the, the first Meiji Japan talked about, uh, that Koreans and the Chinese, and the Koreans and the, and the Taiwanese and the others were there, and with the Chinese did, and they learned something by not doing the healthcare thing. They didn't slacken on the education, but on the healthcare thing, and they learned them from their mistake, and, you know, and then they corrected it and corrected with the rapidity that we come to expect from China. Now, what about the Bangladesh thing? That seems like a bit of a puzzle. The Bangladesh hasn't spent very much more. Actually, I, I ought to say one more thing about that. When we talk about the Chinese, and make this comparison with India, and especially when it comes to Bangladesh, when it's comparison with India, you have to bear in mind that India is a diverse country, and there are different sets in the states. They bear that in mind. Now we'll come to Bangladesh. So Bangladesh, if you look at the average spending, they haven't been that much more than in India. On the other hand, of course, it did have activism, NGOs. But one of the peculiar things was that the NGOs, and indeed the whole of the Bangladeshi development thinking, has been much more concerned with women. This is part, if you want to know why, this is part of the, and this is a different lecture, part of the cultural culture of the independence movement, in which that was tremendously targeted. A lot of the prominent leaders were women. And this was thought to be one of the big things to, to, to pursue. So that, uh, if you look at the, the proportion of women workers in healthcare, in family planning, in schools, enormously higher. Bangladesh is also the beneficiaries. Bangladesh is, in fact, the only country in the world where the number of girls in school exceeds the number of boys. And I think it, it has been playing a major part, as we discuss in the book, in making Bangladesh a a success in a way that it could overtake India in so many of the social indicators fairly comprehensively. It's not one percent behind, one below. If three life effects in three years below and then four years ahead, uh, and, and, and there are lots of other indicators we, we actually discuss. So I think there is an issue of activism. In the context of the rape that happened on the 16th of December, there have been a lot of discussion about the security of women, and rightly so. But there are some things that are left out, one of the things left out, by the way, I'm, I'm trying to do a paper for another journal on that, uh, not New York Times, but uh, a weekly, uh, not a weekly, a fortnightly, but the, and following up some of the missing number things that I had done in, 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 in for the New York Review and for the British Medical Journal, um, as to, there are, there are these stories that you have to look at, the well-being aspect, but there's also how much is India, or for that matter, other countries where women are not so active, are missing out 
on this. Uh, Bangladesh's women's participation rate is twice that of, uh, of India. Now, this is where the division comes in. I mean, there are some states in India. These comparisons don't make real sense because, uh, uh, in fact, um, it so happened that, the, that there are some states in India, not just Kerala, which used to be called the Kerala, Tamil Nadu, in many of the indicators, Himachal Pradesh uh, actually has uh, performed better than, than, than Bangladesh. Now, they, they, when uh, I was arguing many years ago, 30, 40 years ago, about the Kerala, I never used the word Kerala model, but people always said I was talking about Kerala model. What I was saying, there's a lot to learn from Kerala. But Kerala actually had the most um, bureaucratic license route system imaginable. I mean, I've never stayed in a hotel as bad as the, as the I've tried the various governmental hotels in Sivanda, my favorite place, and actually it's unbeatable in terms of inefficiency. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, education and healthcare were quite different right then. And of course, and then it was one of the poor economies. And I was told, Mrs. Uh, John Robinson, one of my teachers, had once written, complaining about Sri Lanka, saying that they were trying to put money on education and healthcare. See, was a believer in no-nonsense growth and not human capital at all. And she had written, saying um, that um, Sri Lanka is trying to taste the fruit of a tree without growing the tree. <laughs> That's unfortunately the view of lots of the growth enthusiasts. <laughs> but actually, in order to grow the tree, you have to do something. And that's not so much the food, because education is not only the food of it, but it's also at the root of it. Education, healthcare, healthy population, educated population. So I was told that Kerala would be a flash in the pan. In fact, now it's changed, the rhetoric has changed. I'm told Kerala, since it's become one of the richest Indian states, saying it has all these good things because it is rich. <laughs> so therefore, go for richness. Well, how did it go rich? Why did Tamil, Tamil Nadu have so fast rate of growth? Why did Hivatul Pradesh have so fast rate of growth? What is the role of human capability in that? And as it happened, again, sometimes point out, people rightly point out that more than 50% of the healthcare in Kerala now comes from the private sector. But that's not how it began. It was covered by, by the public sector. And then when it became richer, then, of course, given a choice, you actually can move in that direction. And when I was addressing the U.S.-Canada debate, I did say that the U.S. had a lot to learn from Canada, but its mistake in stopping private health care, private health insurance, except for three things, namely uh, prescription medicine, optometry, and, and private room, is a mistake, because there's no reason why the rich people could not be able to spend their money on their liver while they are free to spend their money on a yacht or <laughs> going to Acapulco. <laughs> uh, and so, they, they, yeah, their people get richer, they might respect private health care, all right? You have to think about a fair balance so that the private sector is not a parasite on the health service. But that's a different issue. So I think the thing to recognize is that there's one side, there's something about the Asian economic development, the other side something about the importance of gender equity, not just for the well-being of women, but for the well-being of men, women, boys, and girls. 
One of the things that we already saw 30 years ago with data uh, available at that time, this is a subject on which Jean Dreyser himself was working and also Mohamed Amusti, who was a postdoctoral student of mine, was to show that, um, uh, that the impact of women's education is immediately to reduce um, uh, not only the fertility rate, but also discrimination against girls in, in, the, in the rearing of the children. What unfortunately does not do, and this is the subject of a new work I'm doing, is that sex-specific abortion, which wasn't high in India, has become high now, with technique being available. That education doesn't seem to stop. Hematural predation and so on still have high. And there's some factor I don't know. You will find in the book there's one map which splits India into a into a, a, a into two halves. There is an eastern southern half beginning with uh, Assam, where our uh, High Commissioner was sitting there from Assam, Bengal, uh, going all the way down to uh, Tamil Nadu, Karnataka, Kerala, where the birth ratio of girls to boys is still even 19, uh, even 2011, though slightly lower than in uh, than in 2001 is still within the European range. And every state in the North and West has not only lower than the European ratio, lowest European ratio, but also lower than every state in the East and the South. Why? I just don't know. So there are some questions I don't know the answer, and the book has a few of those questions. But I think what worries me is that those questions on which we do know the answer the complementarity between the state and the market in pursuit of well-being, in pursuit of freedom of people, and in pursuit of even economic growth is really important to emphasize. And the role of women, not just as passive recipients of well-being, but also as active agents of change is extremely important. I think I'll stop there. Thank you. Amartya, thank you for that terrific speech. We will, as promised, now open the floor to questions from the audience. James, third row. Hi, James Putzel. Amartya, I don't know if you remember me, but wonderful as always. Um, thank you. you, you but you seem, to, you seem to paint the big difference between India and China as a policy choice, policy choice in favor of education for all, without really reflecting on the difference in terms of the social revolution in China, which might have you know, been part of the cause for those policy choices, both in education and in what they were able to do in agriculture. So I'd like to hear what you have to say about that and the absence of that depth of a social revolution in India. Yeah, I think it's a very good question, James. And the, I think social revolution plays a part. But still, you know, social revolution is a two-way uh, sword. You could, uh, revolutionaries have made such terrible <laughs> mistakes in the world and the, uh, the Chinese did produce, after the social revolution, the most gigantic famine in the history of the world, in which my estimate 
then 16 million, and now 30 million was challenged as being uh, a concoction. Immediately it came out in the New York Review. I had letters from four close friends of mine <laughs> saying I was terribly mistaken. But of course, uh, the numbers now are the, the Chinese themselves produces about 40 to 45 million died. Similarly, cultural revolution, lots of things went wrong. So I think, and you know, I'm a believer in democracy, and democracy did prevent that famine in India. You couldn't get away with that. To me, and this is what the book is about, and I'm so delighted with your question, James, because uh, short of time, I haven't gotten around to, um, uh, to, to discussing that, but that is the principal thing. If you look at the book, and it's a... Uh, I usually prefer reading other people's books than mine, but if you don't mind, I would take the liberty of quoting from the back flap, saying, in dealing with Indian multitude of problems, there may well be a temptation, but not a serious reason, for India to give up or reduce its long commitment to democracy, for which so many people have fought, and out of which so much good has already come to the country. It's deeply disappointing that more use has not been made of the opportunities offered by a political democracy to solve the problem that so many Indians continue to face. The success of a democracy depends ultimately on the vigor of its practice. This is where the social revolution comes in. Um, and with that in mind, the book presents material for informed and reasoned public engagement. The important task is not so much to find a new, I, to find a new India, the title was, the chapter one is New India question mark, not to find a new India, but to contribute to making one. And I think this is where the practice of democracy is central for this book. Uh, would that involve some social revolution? Yes, in many cases it will. Uh, so I, we don't underestimate. In fact, one reason why my collaborator, uh, Dr. Dres, isn't here is because he is agitating right now about food security <laughs> and some other things. Uh, so, and I've, thanks to him, I've also marched on, on the, uh, at the time of the school meal thing, we were successful, the, 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 the Supreme Court accepted that as covered by the right to life and so on. So I think it's a question of, the democracy provides the scrutiny which the social revolution in that form may not easily show, easily generate. It's a point, you know, there's a Indian, political thinker who wrote beautifully, who was originally a socialist, close to communist, and later became the founder of the Free Market Party. His name was Minu Masani, a great figure. I knew him a little. And there is a time where there is an occasion there. I will just look at one of my, uh, um, uh, well, a student of mine, <laughs> uh, who also a columnist called Anand Gedhardas, who writes in the New York Times. He had given me a 14-volume consul assembly thing. I'm reading through this detail thing, and I see what stage he said, the French Revolution. He said, yeah, uh, really, um, they achieved such a lot of things. Here I speak as a socialist, he says. However, and he's referring here to the reign of terror, seeing how they have interpreted the word fraternity, you know, liberty, equality, fraternity, I've now reached a position when I have to introduce my brother. I call him my cousin. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Gentlemen, the front row of this section of the balcony. Please wait for the microphone when it comes and say who you are. Hi, Mayor. Thank you very much. <clears throat> well, India chose its path to glory 
for democracy, and I think rightly so. And it's pity that, it did, uh, that democratic India is not doing as well as, uh, as some other countries. You talk of the contradictions in India. One contradiction that I want you to look at, I want you to look at is this, that we have a democracy and yet our political parties are so undemocratic. And maybe one flaw, maybe this could be a serious flaw, and that I would like to ask you, uh, if our political parties were a little more democratic, would India be performing better? If Thank parties you. were within the party more democratic? Yes. If the parties in their governance more democratic? Well... Oh, no, what do you mean? What is the... Sorry, I don't I'm think I've got the hang of the question. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm talking intra-party democracy. Within party democracy. Within the party democracy. Yeah. And when the parties are autocratic, then that is reflected in yeah. their performance uh, in other yeah. fields also. Yeah. Yeah. Thank well, you. I think the two things to say, and you're right, I think it makes a big difference. Parties being democratic is a big contribution. And one of the good examples would be the whole issue that often disturbs a political debate in India, namely, would there, should there be reservations for women in Parliament? India was the first country to have affirmative action, dealing with former untouchables, as they were called, scheduled caste, scheduled tribe, and so on, uh, education, healthcare, and initially Parliament too. But there was a question, there's a question about women where this should be divided. And um, gender, uh, uh, you know, is a big issue, and I've been very involved with that myself. And I found that the Indian feminists were on two different camps. Some people did want a quota, and others didn't want to do it that way. But the thing, the, the way it's happened in, say, Britain, is, is that the, the parties themselves decided to put up many more feminine women candidates. That becomes a way in which the old taboo of not having women in a large number is broken. So in many ways, the inner party democracy could make a big, way big difference. I agree with that. Secondly, to some extent, of course, uh, in any country, parties have a certain amount of momentum. If you look at the United States, look at the Republican Party or, or Democratic Party, or, the, or even here, Labour Party and, and Tories. Uh, when it comes to austerity, I'm finding it increasingly difficult to tell between the parties. Uh, but um, uh, uh, there's no question that the, uh, uh, there's a certain element of uh, rule, you know, ruler power. Uh, the question is, is it more excessive in India than it, uh, than, uh, not it, than it should be? It certainly is, and it's more excessive everywhere. But is it more excessive than it could be? and more than many other countries. I think that's right. I think it could be. Is there something to learn from China on that? I'm afraid not. <laughs> okay, so a woman in a teal scarf, just two seats away from the gentleman who just spoke. Thank you for another wonderful talk. Oh, thank um, you. My question is, if you were to draw up a balance sheet of the Raj era from the Indian perspective, the pluses and minuses, what might it look like? And I'm very mindful of, um, the more I look into India and its great men, the more awed I am and the more I feel there is a great, um, a great deal of vision, um, very great sense of being part of the cosmos, not just isolated and like, broken into fragments. Um, I find very integrated thinking. I'm thinking of people like 
uh, Mahatma Gandhi, like uh, Tagore. I'm very aware of the concept of India, of, sorry, of zero. We're indebted to India. Without the zero, we wouldn't have our computers, our decimal system, uh, system of financial record keeping, uh, library system, and we just owe so much to India. And I just would be fascinated by what you feel a balance sheet of the Raj era from the Indian perspective might look like. Uh, that, that is my research proposal, actually. <laughs> but it's very difficult. The main difficulty is that in order to see the balance sheet, you have to look at the counterfactual, namely, what would have India been like have the, uh, have the Brits not succeeded in conquering India at that time? Uh, how would it have gone? Would it have gone like Japan? Or would it have gone like Thailand? Or would it have gone, you know, what would it be? So that's the real difficulty. It's very difficult. It's an exciting question, as you're rightly pointing out. Um, I think the... Um, uh, uh, and that question, though, it comes to the social revolution too, actually, I think, and similarly to such an authoritarian, non-democratic thing, of course, yours was not a non-democratic thing, James, that was for a democratic social revolution. But you see, with an authoritarian state, you don't know whether it will go like China today, or China at the time of famine, or North Korea today, or Cambodia yesterday. Uh, uh, and, you know, it's... Uh, it, it's or Cuba in some respect, like healthcare and education, not in other respect, namely looking for a newspaper uh, to, uh, to read. So I think the, uh, it, it's, it's really a very, very difficult uh, comparison to make. But there is a kind of question that we sometimes say that looking at what are the things that we get from Britain that I value most, uh, uh, I think that I can answer. I think uh, certainly <laughs> this, as a schoolboy, I thought Shakespeare was the biggest thing that we got. And actually the fact that I believe it is reflected even in the title of the book. I can't even get away from that today, <laughs> even when I'm discussing India and saying that not many good things happened in the British period. So I think but that's not the answer to your question. It's to answer the question of the thing that came from Britain, what did I value most? I think that's what I would have... Uh, gone to. I think Tagore put it somewhere, the fact that the, the richest, lit, uh, richest literature in poetry is available to us because of the accident of being colonized by a country. We can appreciate the poetry without approving of the colonialism. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, the very back of the center section upstairs. Hi. Um, actually, ma'am, thank you for the wonderful speech. Uh, okay. My name is Uday, and I hail from Trivandrum in Kerala, oh, which you just mentioned was your favorite yeah. city with not really good hotels. <laughs> but, but I can assure you that they're better now. Uh, but my question is uh, regarding the Kerala development model. We really, uh, I mean, not the model, the trajectory of development. Um, the, we really appreciate your work and uh, you know work in recognizing the, the the trajectory in Kerala. Even you know recently with the with the release of the book um, by Bhagwati and Panagaria, and the discussions that were sparked. But my question is, I I find it very hard to place uh, one of the variables that you talk about a lot: freedom, 
uh, in terms of the Kerala development model, which, which is something I looked into for my master's. Because uh, I, I, I would be inclined to assume that it was a very uh, aggressive land reform and uh, along Marxian lines that uh, probably triggered uh, the, the development experience in Kerala. And would you actually recommend uh, such uh, land reform and, uh, uh, you know, like state control uh, to deal with the uncertainty that is <laughs> there in the title, again, uh, for the rest of India? Thank you. Well, it's a very good question. You know, first of all, let me correct. I mean, I do like to land them. Uh, I have to say that the only reason why, despite having been to, to, uh, to uh, land them and given lecture there uh, uh, about uh, 200 times, I've never slept in, uh, in the random because I slept in places like Kovalam and others because Kerala is full of sea coast. Actually, that's not true. Last time I went, I did stay in the, um, in the Taj, CBS? what do I say, Taj thing, which is not run, run horizontally but vertically. You just go up and I had a, I now have got metal knees, which is why I hesitate when I walk. <laughs> but in those days, I had the only the worn-out cartilage, and I decided this is not my hotel where you have to <laughs> walk up and down all the time. But, um, no, Kerala is, is, a, is a wonderful place, and Tirandam is too, in many ways, and historically too, and if you bear in mind your interest, if you are interested in, in, in the Indian, uh, ancient Indian uh, culture and heritage, and say, math, the fact that Aryabhat, which is the biggest figure of math, originated in Kerala, he migrated to Fatna. It's difficult to believe today because he was going to Fatna saying that I want to go where other mathematicians are present. You wouldn't think of Bihar today as quite that. But since I'm, I'm also the Chancellor of Nalanda University being revived, which is the world's oldest university, and of course it had a flourishing astronomy department, and the Chinese scholar Yongsang uh, discusses how he could see the astronomical observatory from his room in the morning. He would pull the curtain and see whether, how far up he can see <laughs> on that. So I think there are a lot of things happening. No, I think the um, freedom issue is a very important one. You say aggressive land reform, yes. Uh, not as aggressive as this in West Bengal. That's one respect, West Bengal, I think, did better than Kerala even. But it did, I think it would be the second best. Did it play a part? Yes, because it released human energy in being able to run things as the Chinese found uh, when, they, when they had a responsibility system. The, what they had, the Chinese had got rid of the landlord, but then put them in a commune, which is communal agriculture is the, uh, is the worst form of agriculture yet invented to run agriculture. But a marvelous thing to get resources for healthcare, because they standardly get 20, 30 percent of healthcare, which came quite nicely, and, and so that's why the Chinese record is so mixed. But land deformity, whether or not it's communist, it's a pro-freedom movement. The entire emphasis on, 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 human, on human capability expansion is, and just to indicate that um, uh, we have to look, I've, I've been already quoting Smith, I quoted <laughs> Minamasani, then we quote Milton Friedman. He came to India at the time of the first five-year plan, and he left the note uh, saying, I think you're putting too much emphasis on physical capital and too little on human capital, which is his way of saying exactly what we are trying to say now. 
So I think, and you know, the author of Free to Choose, it's not a very good book, by the way, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but because it doesn't discuss, unlike Hayek, and I can speak uh, well of Hayek here since I am at LSE, and it's actually, development of freedom is not often recognized. The second most quoted figure, I think third most quoted, after Smith and Marx, I think, is Hayek. Uh, and because he took freedom seriously, but Milton Friedman didn't. He was mainly a, a, a welfareist. On the other hand, certainly he too noted that it was an enormous disconnect in India about education uh, and, 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 and the development of human capability thing. So freedom is very much connected with it. There is the other aspect, not allowing you to do anything like, uh, I mean, the, which is my story, my, the saga of the hotels were connected. There's no free competition. And if, com if, if, if socialization is the worst way of uh, running agriculture, uh, I would say it's the second worst, because the worst is running hotels. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we've all got good travel advice now. Man in a blue shirt and tie in the back. Man in the blue shirt in the back. Yes, you do have a tie on. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for your wonderful lecture. A question about sustainable development, environment, climate change. I was very struck in the book by the very beautiful, eloquent, short section about the need to integrate questions of ecology and so on. Into the yeah, I looked at this book. Yes. Indeed, oh, gosh, indeed. okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you comment more on that? And can you also say, what is it that Professor Dreys is agitating about today? But that's not about the environment. But uh, is he concerned about the environment? Yes. But, you know, we all have to choose our priorities. He's concerned about food security. You see, one of the ways that the Indian debate has gone wrong is that the media doesn't play a sufficiently important role about who the really deprived people are. The term army, ordinary people, and you have to be in favor when you hear there's a party which is called army. You want to support them, of course. But ordinary people, the complaint that voiced, some of them affect everyone. Corruption is certainly one of them. There's no question about that. That, by the way, is not a distinction between China and Korea, uh, China and India, because as, as the Chinese leaders are always saying, it's getting rid of corruption is their biggest thing. The fact that that hasn't prevented them doesn't mean that we ought to go that way, but that's a common ailment we, we, we suffer from. But the, um, uh, the, um, uh, in terms of the, um, uh, um, uh, the important things that, we, uh, that are lost in people's lives, uh, that is what affects the lowest strata of people, or even half of the people, get extraordinarily little attention compared with what has now become the new definition of ordinary people. It's the bottom 20% of the top 20%. Now, if you do your arithmetic right, you will place it somewhere in the spectrum. They are worried about the high price of diesel and not worried about most people not having any instrument into which diesel could be inserted. They're worried about the cooking gas prices, which has to be subsidized. But while most Indians don't have cooking gases, when 31st of July, 600 million people was uh, plunged into darkness, as it was stated, and it earned the, uh, the attention of the economists in the cover, 
called Blackout Nation, 600 million people. Everyone complained uh, rightly that this is a terrible way of running the power sector. Two things that were missing. One was that there were a lot of statements about China, that China doesn't have a problem because it's all privatized. The fact is the Chinese power sector is not privatized. They just run it better. They make adequate investment. And they don't have to carry all the subsidies of the people that, you know, you can't sell electricity at a high price because the urban consumers, the farmers, they're various protected markets. You can't hit them. And the moment you do, the media would immediately uh, carry on that grievance. What it did not mention is that of the 600 million people who didn't have power, 200 million people had no electricity ever. They don't have any connection at all. That you don't hear so much about. So I think it's, the, it's that dialogue. And if you say the practice of democracy is important, it is that. So who is to be blamed? As I, in fact, tell when I give a lecture on this to Indian students, is that ourselves. Because why is it that we can't? There's nothing stopped you from doing it. Um, very few of us had any difficulty in placing a well-written paper in an Indian newspaper. And to say that their, you know, their ownerships are business houses, that's true, but there are a lot of them. And, and the journalists come from upper caste, it's also true. But despite that, and you know, a more egalitarian system might be better, but the real difficulty isn't what you can publish. It's real difficulty is people not being engaged and what people are willing to read and be, be interested in. I don't grumble about it because my, one of my daughters is a film actress, but you would not see the picture of so many film actresses in any other paper in the world in the front page. It just is the, the lightness the heavy burden of lightness is so large in India uh, that I think in order to carry the, uh, carry the democratic dialogue, we have to go into it. And the question with which you began the environment is one of them. We are now having much more discussion on that than it used to be, just that there's much more discussion on gender. And even after the, the 16th December thing, even more so, much more so. But I think that's the way to make democracy practice, because the government might take a view, but you see, in China, all you have to do, and I saw that happening with healthcare, as the heads of the government decided they were mistaken, that's it. There's no further thing. But if the government decides to do something, it doesn't follow. Let me give you a story. In, the, in, uh, in December of... Um, uh, 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 um, uh, of, um, I think it must have been 2010, yeah. Uh, I gave a uh, talk at the Indian Economic Association meeting. I used to be president of it many years ago. Uh, and the present president, Monte uh, Singh Aluwali, had invited me to give that talk, which I did. And among other things pointed out that what was being proposed for food security by the government, 600 crores or so, is is far less than many items, not only things like diesel and cooking gas and electric subsidy, implicit subsidy, but also the money that we lose as a result of not having taxes import duty on jewelry, on diamond and gold. India is the biggest gold consumer in the world, biggest gold importer, and we don't have any taxes. Now, then I was got a wonderful news from Jean Dres saying that the government had just introduced now 
a proposal. And um, so I rubbed my hand in pleasure. Until two months later, I was told that there was so much agitation by common people who have to wear jewelry, uh, <laughs> as well as the jewelers, that the government decided to drop the proposal. It's that that Roy is trying to reverse, and that's why he can't come here. A good cause. In the <laughs> aisle, Dan. Um, yeah. Closer. Okay, sorry. Can you get this closer? Close Hold it closer. Hello? All right. Yes. Ah, exactly. Well yeah. done, Diane. Thank you. Um, yes, I thank you very much for the talk. I very much welcome the emphasis on gender equality. Um, but what I'm wanting is whether you could provide more clues as to how this might come about. Uh, in general, you've placed emphasis on education, but if you take China as your comparator, in both countries you have this sex-selective abortion. And so I'm not sure that you know, education will be sufficient to uh, redress uh, many, you know, the, 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 the gender equality that currently exists. So I, I wondered what advice you had or what clues you might provide <laughs> as to how that might be secured. Yeah, but first uh, to say that I did say in the talk, and, and do discuss it in the book, that as far as sex-selective abortion is concerned, education has not empirically had that effect. And what is not just China, but Korea. But Korea did deal with it by taking on as a separate issue. There were added prop involved in that. And that was a big issue. It, you see, the earliest gender discrimination discussion uh, people often give me credit for it, but the person who did the first paper on it was Lincoln Chen with, uh, with Huck dealing with Bangladeshi distribution within the family, inequality. Now, if that's gone, what has happened? It's education contributed, but making politically an issue. By the way, the, uh, if, the, if you look at the agenda at birth, ratio at birth, roughly people should know that since females survive better than males, uh, there are more boys born than girls everywhere in the world. In fact, more male fetuses are conceived even more than female fetuses. Roughly uh, uh, 100 uh, female fetuses, uh, male fetuses to about 91. And by the time they're born, or 92, by the time they're born, it's around 94, 95. It varies. If you take the European ratio, the average is about 94.2, I think. But uh, we took at the cutoff point Italy, Spain, Portugal, Greece, which uh, they, they vary between 93.9 to 94.1, so we took 94. Uh, Ireland has actually 93.5. Uh, and we Joy and I debated for some time on that. Uh, but uh, these are not connected with sex-selective abortion. But this is the natural variation. To be sure that there's sex-selective abortion taking place, you have to be, that is one way of certainty, that is whether it's below those ratios. Now, every state in north and south of, north and west of India 
is well below 93. And 92 is, I can some of them, uh, some states in Punjab are 85. In China, it also became 85. This has gone up slightly now. Kerala, it had, uh, sorry, Korea, it had fallen, but it had also uh, it gone up a lot more. Bangladesh has gone up now to 97.2. So it's absolutely on the other side of the entire European spectrum. I don't think they're killing male fetuses. I don't think that's how it's achieved. But it would indicate that probably, though we are saying that there is no gender bias as long as it comes to 94, we may be underestimating that because maybe conception rate, because these other biological differences are even higher. So there is this going on. We discuss all that in, in that book. So you have to address that at many levels. Can social revolution was one word that was used by Jane, but um, can social agitation and can a more uh, decisive pursuing of democracy, a political agitation, discussing it and talking about it again and again, uh, does it make a difference? Yes, I think it makes a big difference. You know, and, and since I, I've been involved in the feminist cause for a long time, uh, when we started, and I'm very proud of the fact that I was one of the founding members of the journal called Feminist Economics, uh, and um, we have emphasized the many different ways in which it could make a difference. The big thing to look at there, I know that no, you, you do know it, is, is Mary Wollstonecraft. Uh, because she doesn't talk about only one, there's no magic bullet. She doesn't talk about education only, she doesn't talk about law, she talks about media, violent current discussion, everything. So it is, the, I think, if there's one of the reasons why I, I think of Mary, uh, um, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft as, a, as, a, as possibly the, not only the pioneering, which of course he was, but the, the greatest feminist writer, is the totality, the, the variety of means that she discusses in her book. I mean, in my book, last book, Idea of Justice, she is a, uh, quite a big figure. But I discussed this particular thing. If you, if you do a search in feminist economics, there's an article of mine called Mary, Mary, Quite Contrary, which is about that subject. So it's the totality of this that you have to uh, look at. And education would not serve as a magic bullet. Well, it's amazing that it's such a good bullet for fertilizer. Uh, sorry, for fertility, <laughs> not fertilizer. <laughs> for, for, it is fertilizer, but it's the opposite way. <laughs> it, it's fertility and also uh, uh, gender bias of living. So it's a question of... For, and uh, you know, there was a uh, wonderful set of articles written by uh, Celia Duggar when she was a New York Times correspondent, in, in, in a work in which I uh, was, uh, um, collaborated with her a bit, um, is that, that quite often she found in her studies that the, the main decision to take the uh, um, uh, abortion of the female leader actually came from the mother rather than the father. The same mother would not discriminate against girls once they're born. So there is a distinction. I don't, don't want to get into the hot water territory about abortion rights and so on, uh, because we are not talking about that. We are talking about the fact to understand that if you sex selectively go against female fetuses, 
what you're doing is some equivalence. It doesn't have to indicate that a fetus is a person already. It's not that Supreme Court debate that we are discussing. But we are saying it has a similar effect to uh, uh, not taking uh, girls to uh, hospital during uh, illness. In fact, one of my first work was based on 1971, based on two hospitals in Bombay, where with the help of a very good uh, research assistant I had, and we wrote this article together, Jocelyn Kinch and I, we studied the data uh, of admission of the, of the hospital uh, boys and girls, and you could see that the boys, that the girls were a lot more ill than the boys by the time they were admitted. The obvious of it is that until that point, they are not taken to the hospital in a way that boys are. The fact that there is a symmetry between that and sex-selective abortion is a point that is not a matter just of, of, of women's agency. It is a matter of women's enlightened agency. So nothing can take away the centrality of en enlightenment, uh, which has been one of my engagements, whether it's idea of justice for my last book or this one. So thank you for asking that question. Okay. Amartya, thank you for this uh, discussion and for your generosity in answering all these questions. Uh, we've run out of time, and we need to make time for people to be able to press themselves on you and ask for you to sign copies of your book. So everyone, please join me in thanking Amartya. Thank you very much. Thank you.